Welcome to the Best Player Wins podcast, where we believe that winning is winning, no matter by how little or by how much. And welcome to our first baseball edition of this podcast. My name is Nate Endries, and I'm hosting alongside Jake Deemer. And for those of you guys that are new to listening to one of our podcasts, uh, originally Eddie and I started this Best Player Wins you know, podcast series where we have already done a fantasy football podcast. Jake and I are now going to be your hosts for the fantasy baseball category. And eventually Eddie has some plans to expand into fantasy basketball as well as, you know, potentially like a gaming podcast episode every once in a while. So just to give you a little bit of an inside look into, you know, what we are doing here with starting this. So thanks for everyone that's deciding to listen. Uh, Jake, did you want to say anything just to kind of kick off our first episode here? Introduce yourself. Uh, I'm just excited to get going. I like talking baseball and now I get to do it uh, every week. Yeah. So I'm excited yeah. to get going here. I feel the same. Uh, Jake and I actually originally talked about starting. I remember it was probably sophomore year or maybe the summer going into junior year of college for me. Um, when I originally texted Jake, so this is probably four years ago now, when I said, hey, I actually think it'd be really cool if if eventually we were able to start a podcast about fantasy baseball. And I didn't know back when I said it then if, if it would ever happen, but it just sounded like something that would be really fun to do, given how much, you know, Jake and I really like to talk fantasy baseball. And it's just really cool that now, finally, about three or four years later, we're here, we're recording it. So Hope you guys all enjoy this, and uh, we're doing it for you guys as as much as we're doing it to exercise our need to talk fantasy baseball. So basically, uh, what we plan to do is Jake and I will be on every single week, and we're probably going to record at the end of the weekend to try to release early in the week, every single week of the fantasy baseball season, starting with this episode that's kind of going to give a, a draft preview before our draft next Sunday, which is a week from today we're recording on Sunday the 21st and eventually throughout the season what we plan to do is bring on special guests to kind of co-host with us and those special guests are going to be you guys from our our low expectations keeper league so you know be on the lookout for that if that's something that you'd be interested in please let us know there's obviously 10 other people in this league so we're not going to be able to get everybody on right away but if you are particularly interested in coming on the podcast with us, definitely shoot Jake or myself a text and we'll get you in early this season. Uh, we're excited for that part of the podcast, bringing you guys in on it as well. Basically, our content every single week is going to look a little bit different. Um, there's, of course, going to be weekly segments that you'll hear every single week, but we're also going to kind of do monthly segments as well as seasonal segments. So Weekly and monthly are pretty self-explanatory. The seasonal segments, one of which is going to be the main portion of our, our podcast today, is the draft preview. And of course, that's only going to be relevant probably once per season. Some of the other ones will be like draft breakdown, which we'll probably do in our next episode. will be a recap of the entire season, which we'll do after playoffs are over, things of that nature. So kind of after going over some of the administrative things of the podcast i'm actually going to toss it over to jake not that you guys need an overview of the league but just to kind of introduce everybody who plays in the league um and give everybody their moment here on this first episode go ahead jake 
All right, so I'm just going to go through everybody who plays real quick, maybe a couple little fun facts, just tidbits just about how they've done in the league, stuff of that nature. So uh, first up, we got Andrew Baum. Um, he's new to the league. He came in last year. Unfortunately, that was the shortened year, so he didn't get the, uh, the full experience yet. So this will be his first full season with us. Um, but he's new to the league. He had a pretty successful first year, ended with an early playoff exit, but he's looking to turn that around especially since he has the, in my opinion, the best keeper in Shane Bieber in our league. I agree with that. So next we got, uh, we got Brendan and Brendan is the, um, he's the scrappy team. Uh, you know, he's good for one first round playoff upset almost every year. And uh, he's got three consecutive fourth place finishes he always seems like his team. He always seems like his team overachieves. He always seems like he does a very good job in season. He's never had the real flashy keepers, but he's always been able to make it work. Uh, so, next we got Courtney. Um, originally, just an extra person because we needed the an extra spot filled. But you know, four years later, she's won two championships and uh, say she's done a little better than everybody expected. Uh, so we, I'm going to group these next two together. We got Eddie and Nick. Uh, they're new this year, uh, looking to make their mark. So uh, not, no history behind any of them. They're just going to, they're coming in this year. I think this is their first year playing baseball, but they're excited to join. Uh, so next is me. I guess I'm not, I'm not going to dwell too far on this one, but. Uh, Jake won't speak to his own achievements. So I'll say Jake is the other half of our league's championships with two himself. And uh, unfortunately, topping me this past year for his second championship. So I don't think you need much of an introduction. I think everybody in the league is aware of your reputation as probably the most tough competitor in the league in terms of fantasy baseball specifically. Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm just here to have fun. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to win. Yeah. You've done a good job of that. All right. So next we have Jerowin. Uh, Jerowin. He loves him some prospects, loves him some Brendan McKay every year. But, um, yeah, he's looking, he's looking to come out of a rebuild this year. Uh, he's got a lot of late keepers. He nails the draft. I think, look out, he could be here for a while. Uh, so next we got Jordan. Jordan is the uh, – he made his playoffs in the second year, the third-place finish. Uh, he's looking for a rebound from last year, but the thing that Jordan is known for is Glaber Torres is elite. Face of the franchise, Glaber Torres. And Jake, who who originally drafted Glaber Torres? Just to let the people know, it would be Nate who drafted. That's right. So as much as I troll Jordan a lot by saying Glaber Torres is elite, I guess lately I haven't because I've come around to. To given Jordan his credit for Glaber Torres being elite, but originally I always made fun of Jordan for trading Mike Trout for Glaber Torres straight up before Glaber really broke onto the scene uh, because I actually drafted Glaber and then dropped him. Um, so probably my mistake, but that's a little bit of the insight into the history behind Jordan's stance of Glaber Torres being elite. Next for it, we got JC. Uh, JC is actually one of those. What he has the very first. I want to say. I want to call him a homegrown keeper that he's kept all three years in Jose Ramirez. I believe he's the only one who's done that so far. 
drafted a player and kept them for three years. And he's about to do it again with Trevor Bauer, who he's actually had, who he actually had in, uh, was it 2017 we started this? In 2017 too. So he's had two players now that he's had for four years. So he, he likes to stick with his guys. Uh, so next we got Mike. Mike is the, uh, we called him Big Money Mike because he, we have a trade limit in our league and he didn't seem to care much for that in his first year. And uh, was blown right by that. But he, in his second year, in his second year, he, uh, he finished third. Uh, he's got a great keep this year. So he's, uh, he's in good shape so far. That's a good nickname. And I, he, I think it was, and maybe you can, you can verify this. We had what, we have what a $5 fee per trade that you do over the limit. And he, I think he racked up what $40 or something crazy in trade fees his first year in the league. So he exceeded our trade limit by eight trades or something crazy like that. Yeah, it was like it was the Yankees versus everybody else in terms of payroll. <laughs> it was up yeah. close. I think it was at least I think it was at least thirty dollars, but it was like trade limit wasn't even there. It was good. All right, so that brings us to Sam, and uh, Sam is one of the original, one of the originals. Uh, he's been here since the beginning, and even before that, before we had the keeper league, uh, when we he was that he was the one who originally decided back in high school. Hey, we should do a fantasy baseball league just for fun. And that eventually turned into this. So really he's the, uh, I guess you could say he was, he's the idea behind the whole thing. So, the brains of the operation. Yeah, the brains. And last we got Nate, who I have considered my, my arch rival in this league. Uh, always right there. Never someone I've wanted to play later in the season because Usually his teams get better as the year goes on, just in terms of trades and ads. I think the in-season management is up tier. And uh, frankly, I think that uh, it was definitely an upset last year. Uh, his team was definitely better than mine going in. And if that was a two-week matchup, uh, who knows how that would have turned out. So that's basically the, like the rundown of everybody who plays and just a couple facts about them. Appreciate the uh, the buttering up, even though Courtney has probably been the most successful opposite of you. Um, I can't give her too much credit. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys are very well familiar with, you know, the settings of our league. But what I wanted to do was give a, a very brief overview of our league and our settings. And this might be particularly helpful for some of the new players coming in like Eddie and Nick. But of course, we're, we're now a 12 team keeper league uh head-to-head -head points format and recently have switched over to fan tracks from espn and i know that's a pretty controversial topic especially with sam and brendan who really like the user interface of espn i think you guys will get used to it i think that fan tracks will become the clear uh superior platform to for our league to use so i'm really happy that we made the switch the pick timer makes it all worth it and i can't believe that, that <laughs> up for debate yeah, we'll cut down on the draft time 30 minutes through uh, putting a, a pick timer on JC's picks alone. So I'm excited <laughs> for that too. But talking about some of the more um, specific changes that we've made over the years uh, that I think have improved our league. Well, one is just this first thing that we're doing this year is expanding from 10 to 12 teams. 
And I don't want to necessarily say that that makes all leagues better to get deeper, but I do think in a general sense that 10 teams is pretty shallow for a league and it allows for by the end of the year, especially in keeper format where you have some sellers and some buyers, it basically allows for maybe one or two or even three teams to become absolutely stacked. And it makes it really tough for some of the bottom tier playoff teams to kind of pull off upsets. Whereas I think with an expansion of 12 teams, you have the talent spread out a little bit um, over all of the teams, of course. And while there's still, while there will still be the buyers and sellers that you typically see in a keeper league, I think it's obviously going to be producing more buyers than a league with only 10 teams. So I think it's good in that way as well. And Jake, feel free to jump in and add any context, any of these things that I'm mentioning, if you want. Yeah, I mean, we also expanded the playoffs too, so I, I think that would that should definitely create more more buyers. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. The second thing that we're starting this, I don't want to say we're starting this year, but it was kind of like a ad hoc. We only thought we would be doing it for one season last year because of the shortened season. It's blended head-to-head matchups, and what I'm specifically talking about is playing your second matchup, quote unquote, against the rest of the league where the top now six scores, since we have 12 teams, are going to get a win and the bottom six scores are going to take a loss. So you will have two outcomes or decision points, whatever you want to call them on a per week basis. And what I really like about this is it still allows you to have the rivalry aspect of head-to-head points league matchups where you're playing somebody specific. So like me and Jordan, for example, can still have our one or two or three weeks of trash talk throughout the season, but it also doesn't punish teams that somehow get really unlucky and have, I don't know, let's just say the second highest point scored in the league after like 16 weeks, but somehow they're struggling to make playoffs. Um, It allows them to, or I should say, it just rewards consistency, right? So if you're finishing in the top half of the league, Almost every week, you're going to be awarded with at least one win every single week. So I really like it for that reason. And I'm glad that we've kind of brought it in as a permanent feature to the league. The next thing, which all the credit in the world to Brendan for coming up with this idea. I know that he didn't necessarily spell this out or describe this to a T as we have implemented it into the league, but he kind of came up with the original idea that we all took and ran with, which is the keeper expansion draft. So that obviously we don't know how it's going to play out just yet, but we are all going to be, especially beyond this year when Eddie and Nick will be able to participate. We'll all be keeping five keepers just like we would in any other given year. But then the remaining players that were not kept are actually going to go into kind of like a, a keeper pool that we can all draft one more keeper from right before our live draft. So I think that that's just another thing that's going to keep the league fresh and exciting on a yearly basis is kind of that idea of not knowing what to expect leading up to the draft. So I'm really excited for that feature that we're introducing this year for the first time. And then the last thing, which actually, Jake, I'm going to let you speak to this was the reworking of the determination of our draft order. So I'm actually not, I didn't write it down. I don't know to a T how we've reworked the draft order, but I do know that it's changed from previous years, starting with this coming draft. Yeah, so before we had it almost like like most professional leagues do where teams at the bottom would have – we have a lottery system. So teams at the bottom, if the lower you finish, the higher your odds for a higher pick. So what we found was that 
increased the amount of tanking. Like even if even teams in the back end of the playoffs, uh, if they didn't think they had a real shot, they might start tanking to get a lower, a lower, uh, a lower finish. So they could get a higher pick the following year. So what we did is we kind of flipped that on its head. So now uh, first, second, and third, they're still, those are all stagnant. Those are at the bottom still. Um, but now fourth place has the highest odds of the first overall pick and a higher pick the following year. And um, it just kind of reworks it like lower odds down the line for that. Um, all playoff teams, I think I believe have the same odds except for fourth place and all non-playoff teams, uh, they'll all have the same odds too. So there's not really a benefit anymore to um, tanking. And whether you make the playoffs or not, that's those are just your odds now. So you don't. There's nothing you can do after that to change them. Yeah. So so the top three will finish in the money in terms of payouts, just like they always have. And first place will pick last in our snake draft. Second place will pick second to last third place, third to last. So that's that's kind of always been a feature of our league. But just as Jake mentioned, starting this year, the first finish outside the money, so fourth place, will then get the highest odds for the number one overall pick. And then the remaining, what would it be, four, four playoff teams since we expanded to eight? Yeah. Does that sound right? Okay. The remaining four playoff teams that are not part of that top four will get a certain – percent toward you know of odds toward getting the number one pick and then all non-playoff teams again will have the same percent um as each other so just like jake explained but just kind of breaking it down in order that's what our draft order is going to look like going forward so i think that's a great change as well but let's get into the main content uh the segment that i'm most excited for this week which is our draft preview and we're going to be talking about a few different things in terms of you know, what are some of the effects that we expect of keepers on the draft this year? What are some of the different strategies that people could take in the draft? Like talking about what are what's our most favorite strategy versus what is our least favorite strategy in theory, of course. Is there going to be a prospect frenzy 2.0 like there was in our, la- in our 2020 draft? And then we are going to actually end the draft preview by making some bold predictions, talking about not fantasy teams in our league we'll actually talk about bold predict bold predictions based on the results of our drafts for specific teams in our league next week but we're going to do a player edition today so bold predictions in terms of individual baseball players today and then we'll end the episode with some around the league news and notes so let's get into it jake in terms of the effects that keepers are going to have on this year's draft how much do you think pitching will get pushed up the board relative to any other year? Uh, well, it's kind of the nature of points leagues that pitchers, starting pitchers get pushed up. Uh, they are the most valuable commodity, as, you could, as you've seen in uh, trades or just in the way that they get drafted. But uh, the, the FOMO is very real with starting pitcher, where it is very easy to look at your staff and panic that it is not good enough. Um, this year, I think it is the worst it's ever been in terms of the top of starting pitching. Uh, it's been completely decimated by keepers. Um, out of, for my own rankings, only six out of my top 20 um, are available to be drafted this year, which is worse than it's ever been in the past. 
Um, and while it does make those six more appealing, there is not enough of those guys to go around where everybody will feel comfortable. So I'm thinking that they're all going to be gone maybe within the first two rounds, probably well, almost definitely by the first three. But uh, yeah, I think that there's a significant drop off between this group and the next group of guys where it's going to get interesting is does that next tier of starting pitcher get pushed up then? Or is everybody able to sort of resist that temptation to pass up on the more sure things at hitters just to uh, just get a starting pitcher? Yeah. And I think that your gut feeling on what's going to happen is similar to mine. I don't, you'd be surprised to know since you mentioned that the effect on available pitching talent is kind of more severe this year based on keepers than ever before. You'd be surprised to know that I don't actually expect anything different to happen this year than what happened last year, which was when we saw five non-keeper pitchers go off the board in the first two rounds. That number still feels right to me based on the available talent at the top, because after, just like you mentioned, after the first handful of available guys, there always seems to be a distinct line between them and the next tier of pitchers, which again, seems even more distinguished now that Carlos Carrasco is going to be out for two months. Um, And he's in that, he's kind of at that top of the tier two of the pitchers that would be available. My guess, go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying, yeah, I also had him there and his, him getting hurt there is, uh, yeah, it's it's going to make that all the all the I guess all the thinner the position. Yeah, right. So there's like there there's a pretty distinct line, and then one of the top pitchers of the second tier gets hurt, and the line com- becomes even more distinct. So I don't expect the tier two pitchers to fly off the board way before they should, just because of how much different you know, the, the last guy in the first tier versus the first guy in the second tier are. Um, my guess is that one pitcher will probably go in the top five picks and then another three to four will go in the second round or by the end of the second round, rather. I say this because it's, I think it's easier to say that you'll go pitching heavy, but harder in practice when you start to contemplate just how elite the hitting talent is at the top. And, you know, as we do every year, we'll see what happens. But I always look forward to the first round of the draft, especially because I feel like you just don't know what to expect after the first two to three picks. Like everybody has a pretty consensus feeling of, hey, these three guys should be the first three guys off the board. After that, I feel like strategy or expectation kind of goes out the window because you don't know what to expect in terms of a guy might feel like the first pitcher should go off the board at at number four overall. Or somebody else might feel like none of the pitchers available are deserving to go in the top, I don't know, say seven or eight picks because they're not the super elites like DeGrom, Bieber, or Garrett Cole. So I feel like you, d- you just don't know what to expect. And that's even with a draft that's so depleted of pitching just makes me excited to, to kind of not know what's going to happen even in the first round. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said there. I, I, I think that pitch, it's a lot easier said than done to – um, to actually stick with that approach when you are staring at the the elite hitters that you would have to pass up on. Yep. Again, I, it is it, it is tough to be able to look at your staff and think, well, man, this is not this does not stack up to other people's and think that you know you you got to just get another guy. But I think that you're it would be much more beneficial to try to resist that than. Uh, pull a pull a guy up from that 
from that second tier somewhere where maybe he shouldn't be drafted. Yeah, it all depends on how it plays out too, though, because you could if it, if it, if you somehow started a run of it, I guess. I, I mean, I guess I don't really know how to interpret because if you if you start a run, maybe you feel like, oh, I got this guy at a value that he quote unquote should have went at because of everybody else also attacking the same issue at the same time, which is getting those like second tier pitchers and everybody's starting a run of that. Or maybe you could interpret it as if you're the only one that does it and those guys fall to your next few picks and it's even more beneficial because you got more of those guys. So like, I don't, it's so subjective on whether it's a good or bad thing to push guys up the board that aren't necessarily deserving of super high draft picks. So I, you know, I just, I don't, I'm so conflicted every year as to how I feel about it. I feel like it's not something that you can feel confident to say how you're going to feel about it or how you're going to approach it until you're in, you know, in the draft room on draft day. So looking forward to the unknown, I guess. Second question I have, and I'll lead off here with it, with my, with my feedback is, do you think there will be an increased emphasis on drafting younger players? And, and related to that, will must start veterans be pushed down the board and get drafted as a value as a result? So to give you my take on this, I do think that at large, our league has baked age into its player evaluations over the past few years and increasingly on a yearly basis. We'll get into it shortly, but a major portion of our 2020 draft featured players with little or actually zero track record compared to years past where safer veterans have traditionally filled, you know, the, the mid to late round draft picks. Um, whereas I think that it's smart to incorporate upside picks into your draft pr- plan in the later rounds. I don't necessarily agree with the general notion of the fantasy baseball community that a guy like Randy Arozarena should go way ahead of a guy like Michael Brantley, for example. So like, yes, I do think that you'll tend to see people get good values on veterans who are proven, but lack elite upside based on guys like a Rosarena or even prospects getting pushed way up the board. I do have to share a story though, that shows the flip side of my point of view in this conversation, which was, it was probably even older than my conversation with Jake about, Hey, we should start a fantasy baseball podcast someday. I think it was probably four or five years ago now when Jake and I were discussing this very topic of, should you draft upside picks or safe veterans? And I knew a lot less about fantasy baseball back then than I do now. And I definitely knew less about fantasy baseball than Jake did. Cause I remember after the draft, I mentioned something to the extent of Adrian Gonzalez, who was the first baseman for the Dodgers at the time. I thought that he was a good draft value. And then Jake countered by saying, you know, I don't think Gonzo is actually going to keep his job for very long. Cause there's a kid in the Dodgers farm system that I really like. Now, mind you, Jake hadn't drafted this kid because number one, he hadn't debuted in the majors yet. And number two, we weren't even playing under a keeper format at the time. So there was like no, no incentive to draft young upside players super late. You just kind of scoop them up as they got called up. But Jake, do you remember who, who this kid I'm talking about was? Would you like to share? Uh, It is one Cody Bellinger. Yes. Cody Bellinger, who I had never heard of before that conversation later debuted in that season and won the national league rookie of the year award. So in conclusion, Jake was playing chess while all of us were playing checkers, but things have since changed. Uh, So I guess to give you an overall 
breakdown of my opinion. I think that it's smart to mix in some upside. I think maybe last year we saw it go a little bit too far. Jake, where do you stand with this question? I, I absolutely think it went for last year because we're last year we were getting into guys that weren't projected to debut that year. And I think that's when we take a step too far, at least for me. But um, yeah, I, a lot of guys get pushed up like that. I like the Rose Arena in comparison that you had. I, I don't think they're that dissimilar, but they're probably going to go pretty far apart. Um, before round 10, actually, I think our league has done a pretty good job of not pushing up guys like that. And there's a couple that stand out. I know Vlad, Vlad Jr. went pretty high in his rookie year, probably higher than he should have. Uh, Luis Robert last year, maybe a little bit ahead where he, where he should have, but I mean, even those weren't, weren't real bad. Um, I think you start to see that a lot more once we get to the double rounds. And like you said, with the prospects and really that's kind of rightfully so that's where you should be shooting for upside over uh, some of those more stable veterans. Cause you already have the core of your team put together, presumably by that point. But um. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's mostly more apparent, I think, with starting pitcher in that like guys like Sixto Sanchez, uh, Jesus Lazardo would get drafted ahead of a guy like, say, Charlie Morton or maybe Zach Grinke, where you kind of shoot for that upside where maybe this guy can be an ace or, you know, this guy's probably going to be done in a year or so. Yeah, and Ian Anderson, another guy like that. And I'll actually be interested to know, which hopefully this isn't taken as tampering. I know he's available in our keeper expansion draft. But I'll be interested to see where a guy like Mackenzie Gore gets drafted this year. He's the number one pitching prospect in baseball. And I know San Diego has more pitching arms than they know what to do with right now. But I think people are still expecting him to make his debut sometime this season. So another prime example, like I bet Mackenzie Gore probably will get picked in our our draft if he's not kept in the keeper expansion draft before guys that have proven it before that they'll you know they'll give you valuable innings from the very you know from the very start from day one so uh second question or not third question sorry which manager in our league do you think is in the best position entering the draft based on keepers and i i have a feeling that i know who you're gonna pick and i think who you're gonna pick is my honorable mention for this so go ahead i don't know if right about that because i actually in look prepping for this podcast, I actually changed my original answer. So I'm going to say that I, I actually like JC's uh, situation a lot right now. Um, we'll get into a little bit with the strategy part, but I think that he is in pretty good position to follow that. Um, he's got a pretty good, he's got Bauer, Snell, and Ryu, which is a pretty good top three. I don't think that he has to buy I don't think he has to really reach for any starters if he doesn't want to. He can really get, he can really uh, scoop up any of those elite hitters that fall. All his guys should contribute this year. He's got Bo Bichette real late. Got most of his early picks open too. I, I really like the situation that he has if he's going to compete this year. And just out of curiosity, who did you originally pick? I wonder, I wonder if, if it's who I was thinking. I originally had Jerwin. Okay, that is my honorable mention, Jerwin. So I was, I guess I was right originally until you changed your mind. My yeah. pick is Sam, believe it or not. Uh, so Sam has four keepers that I grade as top seven round values, and they're all coming in the 12th round or later. Um, 
with his fifth keeper being a nice upside play at, in the 20th round, Ryan Mountcastle. I think Sam is in the best position to pair a lot of elite talent with his already so, uh, solid core of players. And whereas a lot of the elite hitters taken early are third base, shortstop, and outfielders, Sam actually already has two of these three positions locked up in Devers and Anderson at third base and shortstop. So that kind of puts him at a position where if he wanted to take the strategy of aggressively attacking the weaker positions in fantasy, like uh, catcher, second base, and even to an extent first base, uh, he really could go at those really aggressively. Um, I think the reason overall why I picked Sam to be in the, the best position is because I think that he probably has the most flexibility to go really any direction that he wants to. Um, because he also has two, I'll, I'll, I'll call them solid, but not great starting pitchers heading into the draft. Uh, so his, his keeper pool for me, like I mentioned, Jerwin is my honorable mention. It barely edged out Jerry's keeper pool because I love Kyle Tucker. I love Corbin Burns. And I also think that Dansby Swanson is a really great value. But uh, yeah, I just have to give the nod to Sam because of kind of the positional makeup as well as the rounds that he's getting his keepers in. So that was my pick as well as my honorable mention for manager in the best position. Yeah, I can't disagree with the Sam one. I really like uh, I really like Savali a lot. Uh, Devers is great. He's He's got a lot, like you said, he's got a lot of flexibility. His first 11 picks are pretty much much do whatever you wanted there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's talk about different strategies. And this one's going to be a little bit more generalized, not necessarily specific to our league, just in general. Um, What is your favorite and least favorite draft strategy to take? specifically let's say in a points league and and I'll actually lead off by sharing my favorite draft strategy which is kind of vanilla it's the balanced approach and I'm emphasizing here the phrase in a vacuum like what's your favorite draft strategy in a vacuum because I typically prefer a balanced approach um, for a few reasons one I think it allows for the most opportunity to use reading the draft room so to speak to your advantage and kind of taking value that falls into your lap This is the approach that I actually took in the recent Dynasty Startup League that I mentioned in our group chat when I was trying to recruit some of you guys to be a part of it. And not only does this approach give you the freedom to really mold your team how you see fit as the draft unfolds, but it usually sets you up well to be compatible with a lot of teams post-draft when it comes to approving your team, improving your team via the trade market. Um, So for example, when you go pitching heavy, you're kind of you're going to kind of limit the impact of what you're willing to offer a manager that feels he is strong in pitching. Same goes for offense, but with a balanced roster, there is usually always a path to a deal with just about any team because you have a wide variety of players to offer at the negotiating table. Now, the one caveat that I'll say is that this approach is harder to execute in a draft where nearly 70 players are going to be taken off the board off the, you know, off the bat in our in a league such as ours. So I'll throw it over to you, Jake, because I imagine you are going to say something different, although I might be surprised. What's your favorite strategy? So first, I just want to get, I guess, my general frame of mind going into the draft. This isn't really a strategy per se, but I sort of try to adhere to the rule safety early, upside late. 
Um, you can't win your draft with your early picks, but you can lose it. Winning happens with your, with your later picks. Uh, I mean, you can look at anything you, you remember, you, you remember the later picks that worked out. Like if I know for me personally, like Acuna, Seager, Burns last year, you remember those guys as the guys that help you to the victory, not your first one or two picks. So I think really my overarching um, thought process is I want to target safer guys early. I don't want a whole lot of high variance players early, but I do want, I want to take those upside plays with my later picks. I don't want to, I don't want the boring veteran in round, round 15 or 16. I'd rather have the high upside play there. But uh, I think for my, for my favorite strategy overall, um, I found myself going more heavily after starting pitching in points leagues. Um, I usually try for, I, I found myself for my first three, well, not my first three picks, at least usually three out of my first four picks are starting pitchers. Um, the drop-off between the tiers of starters is steeper than the drop-off between the tiers of positional players, at least in my opinion. So I think it's, it's also easier to find hitters later off the waiver wire than it is starters. Um, pitchers also get hurt a lot, and I feel like that's kind of a way to cover yourself. I don't really see this strategy working as well for this league because a few top pitchers are there for value, I think. So I, I wouldn't employ that in this league. Generally, if, if we were doing straight redraft, that's how I normally attack it. Yeah, and sounded a little robotic with that mic, but I think we, we got the gist of what you're saying there. It's going to be a lot tougher to, to execute that, just like you said, that pitcher strategy when there's only six available for 12 total owners in the first tier available, and then probably a similar number available in the second tier just because the keeper phenomenon of, of keeping starting pitchers has, has really reached far beyond, you know, just keeping the elite pitchers when you see guys like, and not to knock them in any way, but they're certainly far from tier one of pitchers. Guys like Aaron Savale being kept. Um, I'm sure Dylan Bundy will be a guy that would, that certain teams will eye up during the expansion draft, but guys that are far removed from that tier one of, of, of pitchers that would be drafted, you know, with early picks in a typical draft, when you start to see those be, you know, highly coveted keepers, um, that that kind of just gives you an indication of what the state of pitching is in our keeping in our keeper league. So, I it's, would it's I would a agree mess there. out there. Yeah. So least favorite, and and I'll share mine. And I may sound a little contradictory here because I actually took this approach in a in a head-to-head points league draft that I did last night. But my least favorite approach is the whatever you want to call it, double, triple, quadruple down approach, where basically you are trying to aggressively attack one position or group of positions in particular, um, because I, I think the downside of this is the not drafting a balanced roster. What I shared earlier about the downside of that, where you're just not compatible with other teams, I think that plays into it. But even more so, um, it's my least favorite strategy because it really boxes you in and forces you to be disciplined during the draft. Uh, where, like, if you're going to commit to a more extreme team building approach, you could really screw it up 
and not stand out positively from the rest of the league in any facet if you allow yourself to veer from your planned strategy. I think this this approach can can work well in theory, um, and if somebody really sticks to it, but I've seldom seen people actually execute it well because I think a lot of times people kind of make impromptu decisions to deviate from their plan when they take these really aggressive approaches. So not saying it can't work, not saying it can't be pulled off, you know, in a really great way to pay off in a big way. But I just think in general, it's my least favorite strategy because I think it's the easiest plan to deviate from Jake. What would you say is your least favorite draft strategy? Uh, So mine's not, mine's not really a full draft. I guess it's not as, I want to say complete as yours, but it's, I don't like investing a lot in relief pitcher. I've really, we're not a roto league. We don't, we don't need to chase saves. So we don't need to push up closers, but I still feel like they do get pushed up probably more than they need to uh, Saves adding holes in addition to saves really deepens the player pool for relievers. So I don't really think you need to, like I said, I don't think you really need to chase closers. You can draft, ju- just draft the best relief pitchers based on, uh, their skill, like, you know, like ERA, strikeouts, stuff like that. And there's so much turnover at the position. I don't feel like you're getting a whole lot of security, even with a top guy. I mean, last year, five out of the 10 top relief pitchers were free agents, were free agent ads. Uh, guys will emerge on the waiver wire that will make it so you don't have to heavily invest in a reliever to get a good one. I mean, you might not, there's not always going to be a guy like Devin Williams who comes out and is just is striking out an ungodly amount of batter literally everybody <laughs> yeah and they, but there there is going to be like a trevor rosenthal or a greg holland who's going to be out there who know like he's just the boring veteran he ta- he has a good year he takes the closing job and runs with it and i think those types of guys are all going to be out there and oftentimes they provide more more value than the guys you drafted in say the 12th or 11th round who were supposed to be rock solid closers yeah even guys um that are not earning closer positions. Like I think Chad Green, Jonathan Hernandez, guys that are getting a little bit more than an inning every appearance and their strikeout numbers are above average. I want to say that those guys were both top 15 relievers in our league last year. And obviously names that don't strike you as being top end talent or highly coveted players in the draft. So just speaks to your point even more that relief pitchers that put up good numbers can really come out of nowhere and at any time. So I'm sure that we're still going to see high-end relievers or perceived high-end relievers get pushed up the board and start to get taken in that sixth to eighth round range that they always seem to start to go in. But I have definitely cooled off of being the guy that will take them in that range as the years have gone on. So I would agree with you there. I mean, they they can you can have, they have a lot of benefits sometimes like Liam Hendricks last year. I remember, I think it was two or three years ago, Courtney had Kenley Jansen and Craig Kimberl and they were both putting up like low, like a pretty good pitcher numbers. Yeah. I think they were both like low end started SP ones with their number or how their numbers stacked up. It's not often that you see a relief pitcher put up that man, that those kinds of numbers and there's no guarantee they're going to do it the next year. So it's kind of, I think it's just kind of a crapshoot on which guys are going to do it. And I want to say, and every year that you've seen that, usually 
is not the first reliever off the board that's putting up those numbers. Now, I'm not trying to scare anyone out of taking Liam Hendricks in the draft, um, but I'm just saying as a general rule of thumb, like I don't think Kenley Jansen and Craig Kimbrell were the first two relievers off the board in the year that they were putting up those crazy numbers. They were probably still highly coveted because they were both in their prime then. But I want to say it wasn't until the year after where you started to see Kenley Jansen getting like top four round grades, uh, which obviously does not work out well when they fail to meet the same expectation that they set for themselves in their career years, which is what you saw Courtney get out of them. Same with Liam Hendricks last year. I want to say I drafted him as probably, this is just a guess because I don't have the draft board open in front of me, but probably as like, a top seven to 10 relief pitcher or top seven to 10 closer. Um, but obviously I think he was far and away the best closer in the league. So, and I'm not even trying to toot my own horn here, but overall point is typically the guys that you think are going to be super elite just don't often perform up to the expectation that you would have for them, given where they're usually drafted in our league, which again is probably in that sixth to eighth round range. And you, I, I personally think that you need a guy that's putting up like low SP1, high SP2 numbers to really justify your pick of a reliever there versus, I don't know, like an SP3 type or a high. There's still a lot of high-end hitters available in that range too. So, so I'm in full agreement with you there, Jake. Uh, last thing as it pertains to our draft specifically, and we briefly touched on this earlier, but I wanted to know, do you think, will is there going to be a Prospect Frenzy 2.0? Because I think that Prospect Frenzy 1.0 definitely happened last year. And I'll share why after I let you speak to it. Uh, so, yeah, I think that there is going to be another Prospect Frenzy. But I'm not sure it's going to be to the extent that we had last year because maybe after seeing that it didn't work out that great for a for the majority of the prospects, uh, maybe people will back off a little bit. I think that what happened last year was there were so many prospects taken. It was weird. It was almost like a positional run, but you know, prospects aren't a required position. So people were seeing prospects go and it's like, Oh crap, I got to get a prospect. So um, I guess it was, it was similar to starting pitcher. It just seemed like owners felt like they needed a draft on, or they're going to risk missing out. But uh, like I said, I, I, I didn't I didn't really agree with it. I don't think I really participated in it, and I think it really benefited my team because uh, either during or after that run, I was able to draft three guys that I drafted were Corey Seager, Corbin Burns, and Kyle Tucker. And I think it, when we get into the, that mindset that well, we got to, we kind of start to forget about the guys who were top prospects not that long ago maybe flopped like their first time out or in Seager's case, he was hurt last year. He was hurt the year before, but I think you kind of forget about those guys and the, they, they can have some real value, especially over the ones where, or this prospects where they might not, um, they might not debut that year. And, they, and, you know, like the guys like Seager Burns and Tucker, they all, even if they were just average players, they still would have helped that year. So I, I kind of lean towards getting those types of guys over a lot of over a lot of prospects. And I think that's, I don't want to, I don't want to call it a market inefficiency, but I think that that's somewhere where real value can be, can be seen. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
given some or adding some actual numbers to this conversation as a league last year we drafted 25 players that's a lot 25 players who had not yet made their major league debut and while we've seen highly heralded prospects such as Ronald Acuña Jr., Labor Torres, Fernando Tatis Jr., and even Bo Bichette turn into the some of the highly valuable keepers in our league after being drafted before they had ever made their major league debuts, we had never taken as a league drafting the drafting of prospects in a blended keeper redraft format as far as we did in 2020. Um, despite drafting over two dozen true prospects. Only six total have been submitted as keepers in our first round of keepers, which comprises 58 players across the 10 teams. And kind of making a consistent assumption that at least one more of these guys are going to be taken off the draft board during our keeper expansion draft. And the reason why I say one more is because since the current six out of 58 total keepers you know, our, our true prospects. I'm assuming that that rough estimate of 10% of total keepers will stick in our expansion draft. So I'm estimating about seven total out of 68. That'll mean that seven out of the, to- the 25 true prospects drafted in 2020 were kept when it's all said and done. Um, so I'm not necessarily saying every one of those guys justifies a keeper slot. That's, I guess, kind of subjective and depends on who you're asking. But given in the end that seven of these 25 drafted were kept and somebody valued them enough to keep them around, would you say, Jake, that this hit rate is high enough for you to change your approach to drafting prospects at all? Seven out of 25 is, I guess, slightly more than 25% hit rate. Does that change your mind at all about drafting prospects? Uh, not really. <laughs> um, I, I guess it's just in general, like I said before, I think the guys that were former top prospects not that long ago and or maybe struggled their first time up. Uh, I think I generally prefer to draft those guy types of guys because they tend to get pushed down when prospects get drafted like that. I mean, prospects are exciting, but I think we shouldn't be quick to pass up on the more proven players who have top prospect upside. Yeah. And it's to be honest with you, it's really hard to argue against you when you went three for three on players that ended up turning into absolute studs. Uh, So you're not, you're not really going to get a heavy argument from me there, but I did, I was surprised to see like six out of 25 so far could reach as high as seven or eight out of 25. Like I did think that does seem it seems worthwhile enough to justify there being a prospect run. It's not really a high hit rate, but it certainly didn't, you know, it certainly didn't give everyone zero returns, I guess. So it'll be interesting to see if a prospect run happens again this year. Um, I'm kind of conflicted with how I want to incorporate prospects or if I want to incorporate them into my draft plan, given, you know, how last year went, but, but I definitely don't think that your point can be argued with when, when the examples to back it up are Corey Seager, Kyle Tucker and Corbin Burns. Those are not just good values where you took them, but those are probably top three round or top four round absolute studs in a redraft format. So 
Um, well, I mean, it very it very easily could have not worked out. If I mean, say I would have drafted like Carter Kaboom instead of Corey Seager or Corbin Barnes or something, I I don't think I would, I don't know that I'd be singing a different tune, but my my argument for it definitely would not be quite as strong. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, let's move into, and I think this is actually going to be my favorite part of the episode because we can really kind of bring some statistical analysis to this. And I know that that's what you've been craving, Jake. You're the stats guy. Let's oh, get I'm into ready with some spicy hot takes. Here. <laughs> let's get into bold predictions player edition. And I'm going to let you take this first. First question is which player drafted outside the first three rounds is most likely to return first round value this year. And the criteria that we used is eliminating keepers from this consideration. So outside the top 36 players available, according to fan default draft room rankings for our keeper league specifically, go ahead, Jake. I'm going to go with Jordan. Uh, he's DH, DH only. Uh, and he seems like he has the knees of a 40-year-old. His 2019 season was absolutely incredible. Basically hit like Mike Trout. And all of the uh, baseball savant metrics back, back up his performance. He was 90th percentile or better. Exit velocity, hard hit, hit, hit rate, barrel percentage, and nearly every expected stat that there is. Uh, in short, when he's on the field, he has shown that he is a first-round caliber bat. Uh, it's just a question of staying healthy for him. But I, th- I believe when he is healed, he will provide value. And if he gives you around 140 games, with his, which is probably his ceiling given his health situation, I think he has an outside chance to provide first-round value overall. Yeah, that's that's a really good pick, Gordon Alvarez. And uh, just curious, Jake, did you, did you write down what his sprint speed was graded at? <laughs> I know that it was a shade of blue. <laughs> it was a shade of blue, which on baseball savant means uh, below average. But I can't imagine it's going to get any better this year with, the, <laughs> with his knees either. Yeah, Jordan Alvarez, really interesting player because he's only 23 years old, and I think he's had multiple knee surgeries on both knees at this point. So not ideal, but when they're not having him play the field, like if, if they're only going to have him play the field – I don't know, once a week, I guess it's not really too much of a concern because he probably won't have to use his legs all too much. Uh, so I definitely think that that was a good, a good pick. I went on the opposite side and chose a pitcher because I think pitchers are easier to say at the end of the season. I don't necessarily say, I don't always look back at the, the list of top pitchers and say, oh, this guy should have been drafted in the first round because he finishes a top eight pitcher. That's not necessarily how I kind of make my retroactive retroactive draft evaluations. However, in a points league, you know, in theory, if you're taking the guys who are the most elite at their position and whose position is most scarce and whose production is giving you the most above league average, I think starting pitcher is probably the prime position for that. And so I think technically it does make sense that I don't know, the top five or six pitchers should all be first round talent grades, you know, looking at a season in hindsight. So all that to say, I chose a pitcher and the guy that I chose was Zach Plezak. And first I want to say, believe the breakout because he was never looked at as an elite, near elite, or really even a good player before 2020, which obviously 2020 was a very abbreviated season. 
So he had a breakout season in 2020, seemingly out of nowhere. Among pitchers that threw at least 50 innings last year, Zach Plezak averaged the third most points per game in our league's scoring format, only trailing the likes of Shane Bieber, who had 24.5 points per game, and Trevor Bauer, who had 23.3 points per game, to Zach Plezak's 20.1. Now, this breakout performance was backed up by an elite 27.7K percentage to 2.9 walk percentage combo. And for some of you that aren't super familiar with the advanced statistics, K percentage is just how often in at bats that the guy is getting a strikeout. So Zach Plezak is striking out 27.7% of the batters that he faces, only walking 2.9% of the batters that he faces. That's an elite pairing. Um, and to give context, this walk percentage ranked in the 99th percentile of the league last year. Now, I will say, to give an opposing viewpoint, a lot of people in the industry are suspicious of Zach Plezak's 2020 breakout, given that it only spanned about eight starts, and given that his competition was limited to the weakest division in the league, which was the AL Central. Um, and since the MLB also limited it to limited competition to interleague divisional games. He got to see the NL central as well, which means that he got to pitch against the Pittsburgh pirates who we all know were terrible and will continue to be terrible. Now, all that being said, um, while it's unlikely, of course, anyone going outside the first three rounds in a draft where there's already 70 players off the board is going to be, you know, a lower tier player, super unlikely to return first round value. I do think that Zach, please Zach, is one of the players that stands out who would be most likely to return first round value outside of our first three rounds in this keeper league. Yeah, Anything I, to add, uh, Jake? I, I can't really, I can't really argue with the upside. I mean, he's shown it. I, I think I am a little more wary that it was only eight starts and he's playing the likes of like the Detroit Tigers and the Kansas city Royals, you know, I, I am, I think I am a little more weary of that, but the upside's there. I mean, he did, like you said, he he did pitch like, on a per-game basis. He did pitch like a top, what was it, like a top five pitcher last year? On a per-game basis, he was number three overall. And his teammate, Shane Bieber, who everybody is saying should potentially be starting pitcher number one overall, pitched against the same competition and only averaged 4.4 points more per game. I'm not yeah. saying he's Shane Bieber. I'm just saying, like, people don't really knock Shane Bieber for the competition. They do knock Zach Plezak. So it, yeah, it's, that's it's, fair. it's interesting. I mean, Shane Bieber has a, a more proven and lengthy track record, right? So I don't want to paint it as they're two equals. Um, Zach Plezak has only showed it in 2020. Shane Bieber has shown it dating back kind of to the end of 2018, where people started to see flashes of what he could be. So one has a longer track record than the other. But I just do think it's interesting that people aren't discounting Shane Bieber's season that catapulted him into SP1 overall conversation, but they are discounting uh, Zach Plezak's breakout that catapulted him into kind of like low SP2, high SP3 range. So we'll see what happens. Um, I believe the breakout was real. I would be willing to give Zach Plezak a shot if the value is right this year. So we'll see. On the flip side, 
And I'll share my my answer first for this one. Which player drafted inside the first two rounds of our keeper draft? Again, same criteria. No keepers were included in this in these picks. Is most likely to finish outside the top 100 players overall this year. My pick was another pitcher, Max Scherzer. So Max Scherzer turning 37 this year is coming off of his worst season in years. He finished outside the top 25 starting pitchers as starting pitcher number 27 in 2020. Max Scherzer posted his worst marks dating back to 2015 in strikeout percentage, walk percentage, ERA, expected ERA, hard hit percentage, weighted on base average, expected weighted on base average, Expected weighted on base average on contact, expected slugging, expected batting average, and barrel percentage, as well as exit velocity. I didn't want to miss that one. So in essence, batters were making contact and getting on base more often than ever against Max Scherzer in the past five years. And when they were making contact, the balls were being hit harder and going for extra bases more often than they had in the past. And these numbers were supported by the fact that his strikeout percentage and his walk percentage were in decline is basically what all those advanced statistic declines mean. Um, Now, not only were these marks his worst in their respective categories for each of the last five seasons, every single one of these marks were worse than his career averages in these categories. Now looking beyond, and I want, so I want to be fair here, right? Because Max Scherzer has set really high standards because he's been one of the best pitchers, if not the best, if you're going back five or six years in major league baseball. So if you're weighing him against league average versus his own standards, he was actually still worse than league average in average exit velocity, expected weighted on base average, expected ERA, expected batting average, expected slugging percentage and barrel percentage. So again, you're seeing the same things where guys are hitting the ball more, getting on base more. It's being supported by the fact that they're hitting the ball a lot harder and going for extra bases when they do make contact. Now, all that being said, as I did with Plezak, I want to give the opposing viewpoint that I do think Max Scherzer will still be a very good pitcher um, as he was in 2020. You don't often hear people complain about a top 30 finish at the starting pitcher position, given the cliff after about starting pitcher 35 overall. However, when said player is taken fourth overall in the draft, like he was in 2020, um, and he's likely to go in the first two rounds again this year in 2021, yeah, I don't think that that's what you're looking for. So Max Scherzer is my player um, that I think will likely go in the first two rounds, who is most likely to finish outside the top 100 players this year. Jake, I'm curious to hear who you picked. So I also had Max Scherzer, and I'm going to elaborate on that while I find another guy real quick. I, had, I did have a back. <laughs> um, but for Max Scherzer, for me, it's the question is which player drafted inside the first two rounds is most likely, not necessarily do I think that they will. At the end of the day, Max Scherzer is a 36-year-old starting pitcher with a lot of mileage on his arm, and that is a much riskier profile than a lot of the players around him. Um, there aren't a lot of players in the first two rounds that I would say have true bottom out potential, but Scherzer is definitely at the top of that list for me. Um, We've seen it with guys in the past, like uh, Felix Hernandez and Madison Baumgartner. When the end comes, it, it it comes quickly. 
But uh, the guy that I'll pivot to is actually Clayton Kershaw. And I, Clayton Kershaw, to, to be fair, has never been bad. He's never hurt you. Um, he's always, he's, maybe he hasn't lived up to expectations, but he, he's never bottomed out. And he's, but uh, spring training this year, his velocity is down. A big reason for his turnaround last year was he got, he went to drive line. He got that, he got that velocity back up. Um, I think it was in like the 91, 92 range right now. I believe it's, I don't think it's top 90, but it's around there. Like it's in the 88 to 90 range. Uh, if that velocity goes back down, that could be a lot of trouble. Um, in addition, he does have recurring back issues. Uh, he was on the injured list to start the year last year. Uh, he didn't have a mini rebound last year, but again, if the velocity comes back down, uh, I think you could start to see a little bit of a decline there. So I, I do hesitate to say he has bottom out potential like Scherzer does, because again, Kershaw has never been bad, but the profile for him, the injury risk I think is for him is elevated because of that back. And I don't know if you're going to get the, the elite elite starting pitcher numbers if the velocity doesn't come back. Yeah, that's a fair pick. And to be fair, Max Scherzer has also never been bad. He's never even been close to bad. Obviously, his worst season in a decade was last season where he still finishes a top 30 pitcher. Um, but I think what you're saying is a little bit different between the two because Max Scherzer's escalated bottom out potential is kind of due to that, due to age, um, where even a guy like Justin Verlander, for example, he's kind of the unicorn of really old pitchers where in his age 37 season, which is what Scherzer is coming up on right now. He performed as a top two pitcher in the league. And I think he actually won the Cy Young over Garrett Cole, which might've been did. a little bit controversial, but it just goes to show that he was a top two pitcher in the league. That's the exception to the rule. Typically guys do not age well as it, as it pertains to pitching. Um, and so I think that's why the bottom out potential, as you say, is a little bit higher for Max Scherzer than it is for Kershaw. So they both have, I guess, a little bit of bottom out potential, but I think you described it really well. Kershaw's looks different because I guess his bottom, and it may not even be correct to say bottom out potential, but his, his scenario where he does not return the value that you were expecting out of him is likely due to injury or maybe because like you said, the velocity is not coming back and it's actually declining. I would venture to guess that if it declines even further than what it's already at around 89 to 90, that it might be because of injury and he'll probably get shut down again. So it kind of always, I think with Kershaw until he does show us that he can make it through another four years and become an old, an old pitcher like Scherzer, like Verlander, like Granke, then the conversation with his bust potential is always going to be tied to injury, um, which I think you did a good job covering. So yeah, can't, I agree with dis that. can't disagree with that pick there. I didn't actually go too much into detail with these next two. I didn't really go into any detail at all, actually, with these next two questions, which are making unrelated, so not, not discussing any players that we were just mentioning, an unrelated bold prediction for a hitter as well as for a pitcher. I'll give you my hitter bold prediction first, Jake. J.D. Martinez will be drafted in the first five rounds of our Keeper League draft. And then he will be subsequently dropped in our league at some point this year. All right. My bold prediction for a hitter is a two-parter. I got Cabrian Hayes outperforms Nolan Arenado. Uh, it's a very small sample size. 
for to Brian Hayes, but maybe it's because I'm a homer, but I am fully buying in. Uh, he's always been a glove first prospect, but the contact rate has never really been a problem for him. Uh, what was new though last year was he showed more power than he ever showed in the minor leagues. And he's very good plate discipline. So if the power sticks, which I think it will, he does it. He posts elite exit velocities. The batted ball data looks good. I think he could be, we could be looking at an Anthony Rendon type player who is well worth drafting in the early rounds. On the flip side, we got Nolan Arenado recently traded. I think a lot of this prediction has to do, well, it's not really a prediction, but a lot of this has to do with the uncertainty for him. Um, while he's been remarkably steady, he's out of course field now. He's coming off probably the worst season of his career since his rookie year due to an injury and that injury is to his shoulder. Uh, I don't think he's going to be his road numbers. I know that th those are often cited as being pretty mediocre. I don't think that's going to be the guy he is now, but I also don't think that he's the stud who's been drafted in the first two rounds in the past. Um, he's being picked a little early for me in most drafts. And I think that there's definitely a very plausible outcome where Hayes outperforms him and is subsequently drafted ahead of him next year. I mean, obviously if Mike wasn't going to keep, yeah, I have a few things to add to that. Number one, I love the confidence in Cabrian Hayes. And I love specifically the the comp that you gave him to Anthony Rendon because I think like a, a prime younger Anthony Rendon, and I guess I shouldn't use the, the term prime because what Rendon has been giving you these last two seasons might be better than what, you know, what he gave you as a younger 26, 27-year-old. Um, but I say younger because I think that younger Anthony Rendon's profile maybe matches Cabrian Hayes' profile a little bit better than current Rendon, which is to say that Cabrian Hayes has a great plate approach. Um, he doesn't strike out a ton. He can take walks, so you love that skill. He's grown into power, as he showed in his brief stint in the majors last year, like you touched on. So those two things are very, you know, Rendon-esque in terms of current day Rendon but what Rendon or but what Cabrian Hayes will also give you which I think a younger Anthony Rendon would give you is some steals too he's got some speed he's not going to be Trey Turner in his prime he's not going to be Christian Yelich or Mike Trout who are who would steal 30 bases on top of hitting 30 home runs but I do think that Cabrian Hayes is capable over a full season of giving you 15 steals um, and that profile of having a good plate approach coming into power and sustaining it as well as having some speed is kind of like the, the holy trifecta of an offensive skill set for our scoring settings. So I love the confidence in Cabrian Hayes. I'm unsure of how I feel about Nolan Arenado. Um, he'll be an interesting case study this year, I think, because a lot of people say, you know, insert, Colorado Rockies star hitter here, his numbers would be worse if he got traded out of Coors Field. Now we saw, and this was, a, this was before our time playing fantasy baseball, but a decade or more ago, Matt Holiday left the Colorado Rockies to go to the same place, to go to the St. Louis Cardinals. And he did not fall off in production very much at all. I think the only thing that regressed, and it was only very slightly, was batting average. His power was the same. His strikeout to walk numbers were the same. That it doesn't really that doesn't affect anything by part. I mean, I guess it could because, um, and this might be a, a kind of caveat, but 
fastballs are a little bit more flat in Coors Field because of like the density of the air. That's why it's so hard to pitch at Coors Field. Just as a, kind of like a little FYI for anyone who might not have known that. Um, but I don't think overall it's going to change a hitter's like strikeout to walk rate. Um, but to, to get to the bottom line of the point, Matt Holiday made the exact same transition from one park to the exact same park that Nolan Arenado has. And the only thing that reduced, and it was really only slightly, was batting average. So I don't expect Arenado's output to be night and day different, but I'll be interested to see if it is because everyone seems to think that it will. Um, so that's kind of my thoughts on your first bold prediction. I like it. Second bold prediction, Jake, I'll let you go ahead for a pitcher. What do you got? All right, get ready. Cause this one is even bolder one. Uh, I'm going to say Tariq Skubal is a top 25 starting pitcher in points per game. And that is only due to probably a low innings total. I'm really excited about him. Uh, he seems like he's regarded as the third member, like the third member of the big three Tigers pitching prospects with the other two being, uh, of course, Matt Manning and Casey Mize. But I, this year especially, I would prefer him to both of them. Uh, this is a guy who had an incredibly high strikeout rate at the minors, a 17.4 case for nine in 2019. Uh, but he was able to get through the minors with mostly just a fastball. He didn't really tune his secondary pitch as much at all. And that came back to bite him a little bit last year. Uh, he had almost a six ERA in his debut. Um, his ex-FIP was, was, was like a run lower, but the other, like Sierra and FIP were about the same and said he earned it. But he spent this offseason working a driveline to revamp his secondary arsenal. And it really is looking like it's paying off this spring. Is eight shutout innings with 12 strikeouts. A lot of those are coming on secondary pitches, like his changeup. Uh, the biggest thing is that he, for me, is he's utilizing his secondary stuff and he's had, having success with it. He won't get he won't get the innings to be a top 25 starter, but I do think it's doable on a per inning basis if things go his way. Yeah, I could certainly see that. And you mentioned that Tariq Skubal is primarily a two pitch pitcher. Um, not common for those kinds of guys to be successful starters like typically you'll see two start pitchers end up as relievers however there is a path and a blueprint to being a successful two pitch pitcher and I might even be blanking on a couple guys but some guys that come to mind are Chris Paddock who obviously struggled last year but he had a big breakout performance in 2019 and another guy that I actually think Scooble can kind of take a, a similar breakout path to um, is Tyler Glass now, who is himself a really high strikeout pitcher. So certainly have seen successful two-start, sorry, two-pitch starting pitchers before. And I do like the Scooble pick of him being kind of like the next big two-pitch breakout starting pitcher. So, And just before, just so when we go back, I did not say that these picks will be right. They were, I only said they would be bold. <laughs> uh, 20, starting Top 25 starting pitcher on a per-start basis for Scooble. If you would have said, and I guess it would be very bold because I agree that he's just not going to get the innings that he would need to be top 25 overall. But if you would have said top 25 starting pitchers, period, that would have been really bold. I yeah, think I, was, I, I might bold. agree. Yeah, I think I might agree with you on Scooble being top 25 on a per-start basis. Um, 
Time will tell. We'll see. We'll see what happens. My bold prediction for a pitcher is Zach Plezak's teammate, Aaron Savale, will receive an AL Cy Young vote this season. Now, I don't actually have anything, just like I did with my J.D. Martinez predict, bold prediction, I didn't actually prepare anything to add context to this. But I will say, Savale is already an innings eater, um, so he'll pitch a ton of innings throughout the season. Think of guys like Lance Lynn, Trevor Bauer, and then, of course, your studs like Shane Bieber, Garrett Cole, Jacob deGrom. Um, they're all going to give you some of the most innings in the league when you look at a leaderboard come season's end. Aaron Savale is going to be right up there with those guys. So in terms of volume, he will be out there on the mound as much as anyone to have the opportunity to garner an AL Cy Young vote if his performance is up to is is up to the par of those guys as well, which who knows how it's going to play out in the regular season. But Aaron Savale did shorten his delivery this offseason. So he's going to be pitching kind of with a, a slightly different approach. And he's already shown the upside in the past to be really good on a per start basis um, when he's even above average, just based on the, the total volume of innings that he gives you in any given start compared to other starting pitchers around the league. So I think if he's able to take that next step forward with his stuff and put it out there more consistently than once every three starts or whatever he would typically do. Um, I think coupling that kind of next step with his talent on a per start basis with the volume that he is going to get. I just think that that's going to be enough for, and this doesn't really relate to fantasy, but for voters to say, yeah, this guy belongs in the AL Cy Young um, in the most valuable pitcher conversation for the American league this year. So I absolutely agree. I love Savali. Um, I I think that that new arm slot for him is going to do, I don't want to say do wonders, but it's going to help him a lot. And really, I think he had a better season last year than people give him credit for. It was really ruined by one implosion in his last start against the Pirates of all teams. And I think that that, that in the shortened season, that can that moves your ERA more than you would, more than normal. So, I believe that he had like a mid threes, mid mid to high threes ERA before that. And then it shot up well over four after that start. And I think that would normalize over, over regular season. But I, again, I'm in full agreement with you. I, I love Savali. He, he really reminds me of like a, a really good. And I say that really good. I'm talking about this version of Lance Lynn. So what we've seen over the past two years of from Lance Lynn of not only super high volume of innings, but also really quality innings. That's kind of the player that he reminds me of. Like Lance Lynn has been a lot better than Savale over the past two seasons. But I think that Savale has a similar and maybe even higher upside than what we've seen from Lynn over the past two years, which I definitely think if he were to show that over the course of a full season would be worthy of the Cy Young conversation. So uh, I actually, Sam actually asked me like, should I, do you think I should keep Bundy? Do you think I should keep Savale? I don't know if I gave him the right information, but I told him that I really liked Savale and that seems to be who he ended up going with. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. I like Savale a lot more than Bundy. Hopefully for, for Sam's sake, that bold prediction comes true. <laughs> Let's wrap up by talking news and notes. And this will be brief. Uh, 
talking about two pitchers specifically, Carlos Carrasco has a torn hamstring and he will be out for a minimum of six to eight weeks. Jake, I ask you if cookie isn't pitching in a major league game until mid to late June, which maybe that's a little longer than what reports would suggest, but I am just kind of baking in the fact that he's going to need to ramp back up baking in maybe a one week setback mid to late June sounds right to me. Where would you feel comfortable taking him in our draft? And I, and let me, let me actually, sorry, let me, let me say this, this consideration of getting to keep him for a discount in 2022 entice you to draft him this year at a certain point, even though you presumably don't want to spend mid round picks on injured players. I think that the 11th or 12th round or later probably feels about right to me. Um, I think at that point, most of the pitchers you can count on for innings are going to be gone. So Carrasco is just as much upside inning for inning as anyone going in that range, probably more. Um, but I will say if I had not, I would not be surprised if he goes earlier than that. Um, I guess it, it does a little bit, or it does, I, I, I would give him more consideration because of the discount a little bit, but I, I just, I guess this goes into my draft strategy a little more. I don't normally during the draft plan as much for the following year as I do for the present year. I give that a lot more weight. Um, and maybe that's why I'm going to be in trouble for keepers after this year, but that's, that's another story. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll always prioritize the current year over the next one. So there is a lot of risk with Carrasco. Um, I don't know. He, he is a little risky for me. He, he is kind of getting up there in age and, uh, he's not proven to be the most durable guy in the past either. I'm not talking about the leukemia, of course. It's just yeah. Come on, guy gets <laughs> cancer and you don't trust him anymore. No, no, no. It's it, <laughs> he's shown he can peak and do it, but before all that, he wasn't always the most durable pitcher. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I agree with your assessment. Anything after like the 11th round feels right. Um, Another guy that's not necessarily the same situation, but similar, Framber Valdez. He has a broken finger in his pitching hand that, despite initially believing that it would require season-ending corrective surgery, he actually elected to avoid surgery in hopes of pitching sometime this season, although he has no timetable for return. Jake, I ask you, uh, where did you have Valdez ranked among your pitchers entering 2021 before news broke that he was injured? I had him ranked in the mid thirties among all pitchers. I think that would have put him around 15th or so for our draft, just with all the guys being kept. Sure. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I, I wasn't as high on him as some, as I've seen some others be, but I don't, I definitely wasn't as low on him as I've, as I've seen either. Yeah. And I wanted to ask that question. Cause he definitely does seem to be a controversial or volatile, whatever term you want to slap on it, player pitcher specifically in the fantasy baseball industry. So I was just curious on what your valuation was of him before he got hurt. Uh, so, so next I'll ask, are you reasonably willing to touch Valdez in our draft or would you rather just let somebody else eat the roster spot? Uh, it's going to be another situation like Carrasco where he has to go late enough for me to feel like he's going to benefit me enough this year because um, for him to be a viable keeper in 2022, he has, I think he has to repeat the success he had in 2020. And I don't think that's a given. So there is a non-zero chance that if I draft him too early, then that's just sort of a wasted roster space. Right. So I think originally 
it was around like I looked this up on NFBC a little bit ago just to kind of get the dates before. I think he was around 90th overall in ADP, um, which would put him about 25 spots lower when you consider keepers for our draft. So I believe that would have put him around the same range that I said I'd be comfortable drafting Carrasco. But again, he's not as he's definitely not the sure thing that Carrasco would be when he's on the mound. So I'm a little more hesitant to take him there just because I'm, I'm not entirely sure what I'm getting. Yeah. You stole the thunder a little bit from my last question. So I'll slightly alter it. Obviously, as you said, he does not have the track record that Carlos Carrasco does. Um, But do you think that he would be a keeper candidate in 2022, depending on where he goes, if it comes out that he actually has to miss the whole season? Is there a point um, where he would be taken in the draft that even though he didn't pitch at all this year, you would be willing to keep him or based on his limited track record, plus a potential season ending injury, if it were to happen that way, where you just say, nah, I don't really want to spend a keeper spot on that guy. Yeah. If it comes out, he's out for the whole year. It would probably be, have to be a situation where I get him with one of my last, maybe three picks or so, which I doubt happens because obviously yeah, that, that doesn't point, seem like doesn't seem like news that's going to come out in the next seven days. So <laughs> yeah. And at that point you're just throwing darts anyways. So he's seen, he has just as much upside as anyone in that range for the most part. Yeah. Well, that brings our first episode to a conclusion. Thank you guys all for listening today. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making the episode. Um, and we're, we're here to say, we're going to release episodes. As I mentioned, every single week, try to bring, you know, some structure to your lives and give you some, some of the same segments every week to look forward to, but also bring in new content and keep it fresh throughout the season. So hope you enjoyed it. Hope you are looking forward to the next one. Like we are. And uh, again, thanks for listening to this first episode of the best player wins podcast, fantasy baseball edition Uh, for Jake Deemer. I am Nate Endries and we will see you on the next episode. Yeah.